0: Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmelli, My co-host here, Dave Popovich. How you doing, buddy? I'm great,
1: Faisal. How are you doing?
0: I am doing well. Okay. Um, we are having a very interesting week because we didn't have a major snowstorm.
1: Right. Or even a major snowstorm in the markets. I'm talking about both, yeah. Oh, Good. Good. Be careful about next week. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We might as. And I'm talking about year. the
0: weather, maybe not the markets. <laughs> we'll find out next week. We will about what happens next week.
1: We had a really cool uh, PKAG community event uh, this past week where we were talking about um, uh, the impact of adult children, how to support them if they're having problems, and if you're gifting to them, and all kinds of stuff around adult children. Right? What parents can do.
0: Yeah, the conversation and communication that you have with the people you who are going to receive your money, either while you're alive, or upon your death. How do you communicate with them? What kind of disclosures do you give? Mm-hmm. How much information do you share? Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the approach to it? Communication, communication, communication. One thing that was brought up was the duties of the estate, which is an executor. And we're going to talk about that on today's show. Uh, can your executor basically quit, walk away, say, I don't
1: want to do this anymore? Or when do you actually become an executor? Right, right off the bat, there's some, there's some, there's some things, actions people do. That obligate them to things, and they need to understand that, right? And then if they're in over their head, boy, what do you have to do to get out of it if it's not something you, you know, you you, you want to handle?
0: Yeah, and I, and also on the show, you know, we talk about the Federal Reserve, the Bank of Canada, yeah. all the debt that we're accumulating in all these nations. It's going to have an economic catastrophe. We're going to talk to an economist to say how much of a catastrophe is this? How bad is it? Where's the issues and how should we be looking at this We've got a professor talking to us about how we can have a maybe a, a different view of the economic numbers so we can have a and how better to understand understanding. it right? yeah. how to understand it and I think that's important Let's talk
1: about understanding. what what was your understanding of the markets this week um, so in in the absence of any um, big shocks to the system I think I classify this week as a uh, markets, both stock and bond markets continuing to ride the wave of optimism around the fact that we are getting closer to the end of the rate hikes than we are at the beginning here. Now uh, I'm going to nuance it a little bit Faisal in that I think central banks have, uh, have given indications that the size of the rate increases that we're, we have seen over the past several months are likely to come down, like it's likely to get smaller. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the destination they're going to, in terms of where they want interest rates to be, is necessarily going to be less. So if we're not making 75 basis points or three quarters of one percent interest rate increases, we're not seeing that from the central bank. Maybe we're seeing 50 basis point, half you know half point, or maybe quarter point. But are we going to see more of them? Um, now the market's wave of optimism right now is around the fact that we're closer to the end of it, right? And I think we have seen. Uh, some of the inflation data indicate that it's breaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that to me, defines this week. Now, now you're referring to the
0: Federal Reserve on the U.S. side. Well, The Canadian d- economic data came in is that um, va- job vacancies are up.
1: And inflation didn't fall in the most recent report in Canada.
0: So <clears throat> are we having a tale of two different stories here? Do you think that the Canadian central bank Will continue to raise interest rates until they can get their, the job side figured out, or do you think that they 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 are on the same trajectory as the Federal Reserve in the U.S.?
1: So no, I think they're different trajectories, but I think that the Canadian government is likely is likely to pause. You mean the Bank of Canada? Uh, sorry, uh, the Bank of Canada. What did I say? Government of Canada. Uh, okay, yeah, Bank of Canada likely to pause before the uh, before the U.S. does, and the the Canadian economy uh, tends to be more interest rate sensitive than the U.S. does. And you just think about mortgages, right? In the U.S., you could get a you get a thirty year mortgage, yeah. and I'm not talking amortization period. I'm talking about a thirty year mortgage a term. Yeah, right? and we get five, right? right? So there's lots of people in the U.S. that would be insulated from rising interest rates in a way that we in Canada simply can't protect. I think ourselves. the
0: big thing that Canadians have to understand between the two central bankers is their mandate. Hmm. The Americans Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, has two mandates inflation and jobs. The Canadian mandate does not have the jobs part of it, just Correct. the inflation. Correct. So they're not as focused on the job impact, the vacancy rates and so forth, as the as the Federal Reserve would be. Right. So I, I would I would agree with you that Maybe the Canadian economy way more sensitive to the change in interest rates, way more um, uh, predictive that they're going to slow down faster than the American side. But you're seeing the conversation between the two central banks a little bit different. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's nuanced. I, I think you're right.
0: Now, when you're in Canada and you are looking at um, your future, your retirement, and you know that the central bankers here are going to you know, play around with interest rates. I think this is an interesting point in time for, for people who are approaching or living in retirement. I think they should relook look at their, their retirement plans, and I think they should have a review of what are their cases of assumptions that they're going to have going forward. Mm-hmm. Inflation, rate of return, longevity. All these things are going to come into play. Spending, people have changed their behavior on spending a bit. These are the things you need to take another look now that we've we kind of got an idea that we're closer to the end of this interest rate increase cycle than we are to the uh, to anything else. So let's let's take a look at our, our retirement plans. Are we good from this point going
1: forward? So, and, and I mean I mean expand that to to the idea of process, which we always talk about, right? Structure and discipline. Part of that structure is the process of going through. And there's there's two times we often talk about or two things that that precipitate a, ret- um, a review of the plan, right? That isn't just normal. One is if there's a macroeconomic change. Mm-hmm. And there is, right? Inflation and interest rates. That's a change. Review your plan. The others, of course, if something changes in somebody's life, right? Go back, review the plan to see what the impacts are, the different goals, and so on and so forth. 100%. Yeah, so, so take out inflation, take out high interest rates, right? If there's a macro change, process says get back there. Yeah, and
0: I think when you look at um, where the markets are moving, what's interesting to see is... We're talking about valuations. Mm -hmm. More and more analysts, economists to some degree, um, media personnel are going to talk about what's the valuations of companies. Are they expensive or cheap, so on and so forth. I want to put a a, a bit of caution to looking at just valuations. Because valuations are not in in its own little bubble.
1: It's relative.
0: It's relative. And so you're going to hear certain countries are cheaper than certain countries. Well, maybe they have to be. Mm-hmm. You need to have an economic thesis. And I find it very interesting that we have a lot of um, analysts out there who just look at valuation purely from one metric, price to earnings ratio. And it's not, a, it's not like we don't pay attention to it. You need to pay attention mm-hmm. to it. But it's not the only thing. Yep. Right. When you look at previous experts in history, um, Benjamin Graham. When you look at um, Warren Buffett, just to name two, their their discipline is one part of it. Is the earnings multiple? Mm-hmm. One part of it is management. And but they have a higher valuation, generally speaking. They they put a multiples higher than what the averages have been in the last twenty years. Mm-hmm. Because they think good management would be the one. So I think there's you're going to see a shift happening now where stock selection is more important than the broader market. And I think when you go in through your retirement pro- program or your, your portfolio, you can have a collection of, of good ideas, of a bunch of stocks. That doesn't mean you're selecting stocks based on the current economic situation. Right. You're basing it upon an, an idea. So I think going forward investors need to look at their portfolio and say, am I ready for the next three to five years in the current economic situation? And then what investment discipline should I adopt to that? And I'll tell you, there's a lot of money managers out there, a lot of do-it-yourself investors who are not changing their viewpoint on the economy. And so they're keeping their discipline the same. Mm -hmm. And I think there might be some big errors out there a lot of go to the general market, just go to the general market, you might see in 2023 a, a shift happening. There.
1: Yeah, and then uh, just as we wrap this segment up, um, you know, a, kind of a year-end tip for for people on uh, on investment management. If they've got a thesis, not just a collection of good ideas, you've got a thesis, Okay, at least once a year, people should be rebalancing their portfolio to make sure their strategy is is still tight. What does that mean?
0: Yeah, so basically when you have a, a portfolio with different weights of different investments. You had a target of what you wanted at the beginning of the year. You look at your thesis. What should your target be? Let's say, for example, sixty percent bonds. Sorry, stocks forty percent bonds. Yeah. Sixty stocks, forty bonds. And you're not you're not at that, that percentage anymore. Yep. You might want to start to rebalance that. And there's an opportunity from a tax perspective as well going into the into this year end.
1: So one of the most important things that you can do, uh, I think, in the total wealth pr- planning process right, in retirement is make sure you've properly prepared uh, for the transition of wealth to the next generation, the wills and so on and so forth. And there's some key roles in those documents that I think people are sometimes unclear on. Yeah. Or perhaps, uh, let's talk executor because we're going to talk that in a minute. They think it's a privilege to be asked. And then they get themselves in over their head and they realize, oh, my goodness, what have I gotten myself into? How do I get out of this?
0: Uh, the amount of times I have heard people say to me, I'm an executor of my parents' estate. Right. And I don't want to do this. <laughs> right. Right. Right? They're, they're either at the beginning part, they're like, oh, oh what do I do, Faisal? or they're going through the process they have to deal with cra they have to talk to their siblings and yeah. beneficiaries they have to go through all the assets and accounts talk to all the financial institutions and all that stuff and they're like i did not know i thought it was like some sort of title and that's it <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, And, and a... it's, it's tough I, I i have seen too many people be very flustered yeah. frustrated and uh and just want to say they throw their hands up and say i, I don't want to do this anymore
1: well, and I had a call on Thursday to this particular point, um, a client uh, is now acting in that capacity for their parent, called to say, I do not want my kids acting in this capacity, it's brutal, I yeah. want to change things. So it, I think we have to review what these key roles are, what your responsibilities are, and if you're in it and you want to get out of it, what is it going to take?
0: Yeah, so let's bring in on our, our reoccurring guest, and expert for estate planning and so forth, this Is Catherine Zhang, partner at Walsh LLP. Catherine, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me again, guys.
1: All right. So you heard our little bit of preamble there. Um, I want you, if you can, just walk walk us through the process um, for determining who an executor, uh, executor in your estate should be and why.
2: That's a great question. Um, I think the first thing you have to ask yourself is, um, who are the people um, in my life that I would trust the most or feel most comfortable with um, leaving uh, instructions to and um, have confidence in that they would be able to follow those instructions and Uh, Number one, determine what all my assets are, determine what all my liabilities are, and then actually carry out the instructions. Um, uh, Sometimes uh, clients will come in and think, well, am I obligated to appoint my kids? Um, If I have three kids, do I have to appoint all of them? Um, Or am I only allowed to appoint appoint one person? Mm -hmm. Um, And Usually, uh, what I start with is it really depends on your situation. It depends on um, whether or not you are comfortable with doing that with your children. If Those are the people you would naturally turn to Um, and maybe how complex your estate is. If your estate is very complex and you've got a lot of assets to deal with, you've got a lot of potential beneficiaries and maybe some trusts, maybe appointing an individual person isn't going to be the best fit. Uh, So we talk about maybe at that point appointing professional executors. That's an option too.
0: Catherine, I I find that um, when people are selecting executors, one of the criteria is to understand the financial world, accounting, tax, uh, dealing with financial institutions. I think that's one that they need to have some sort of understanding or background in. But I also think uh, the human side of things, dealing with beneficiaries and people needs a a spot in there and i find that the ones that are having the the biggest challenge it's not dealing with the financial institutions per se it's not dealing with cra or dealing with uh, all the assets it's dealing with the people such as beneficiaries trustees and so forth and then they throw their hands up and say i quit i don't want to do this so let's talk about that one piece when people say i'm done i don't want to do this can an executor quit? And, and if they can, what do they do?
2: Um, I mean, black and white answer is yes, but it takes... A couple of steps, uh, particularly if they've already started uh, administering the ata- uh, estate, uh, if they've already started um, taking steps and representing themselves out uh, either to beneficiaries or financial institutions as the point person for the estate, um, they are unfortunately in a position where they need to get a special uh, court order from the court to confirm that they can be discharged. And that's just uh, to protect both them in the sense that at that point they need to provide a report of all of the actions they've taken to date uh, and confirm with the court that Um, those actions have been acceptable and it gives the beneficiaries an opportunity to review what's been done to date. Um, And then it helps the next executor coming in to start with quote-unquote a clean slate so that the new executor isn't stuck um, with potential liabilities or uh, potential obligations that they that they didn't enter into on behalf of the estate.
1: So, Catherine, you said something at the beginning of that statement that uh, I think we should clarify for people because it's this notion of representing yourself at the beginning as the executor, Mm -hmm. right? Maybe you can clarify that because that can be very simple things that are done just to a regular person, not recognizing that you've now just accepted that role.
2: That's correct. So a lot of people, uh, when they get the will um, and they're acting on behalf of the uh, person who's passed away, they start making question, uh, making inquiries, going to banks, trying to figure out what accounts were held. Uh, they make phone calls to insurance companies or mm-hmm. utility companies to try and make sure bills are maintained. Even the simple act of making those inquiries and pointing to the fact that you've been named executor in the will and saying, yeah, this person's passed away, I'd like more information, that can get you caught in a situation where you are not able to step down from acting unless you've got a court order.
0: Now, Catherine, what if through the process, the executor doesn't perform all their duties that they've agreed to? What happens in that case and who who actually brings up that those types of issues up?
2: That's a really great question. Um, what I normally find is it's the beneficiaries who are just monitoring the estate. Um, you know, it's it's pretty common that it'll take a significant period of time for an estate to be wound up particularly if there are multiple assets and liabilities that an executor is dealing with. So the beneficiary is entitled to check in, make inquiries from time to time and ask what's the status of the estate? Mm -hmm. Uh, And if a period of time goes by and the status has not changed then yeah, absolutely a beneficiary is entitled to Um, start making more serious inquiries or request a formal accounting from the executor.
1: And are there any potential um, negative outcomes? So if somebody's performed uh, their duties and maybe they haven't lived up to it, uh, is that different than if somebody has obviously acted in a way that is um, inappropriate?
2: Yes, absolutely. So I think um, the way the legislation works, um, there's both there's the Estate Administration Act uh, and the Surrogate Court Rules, which sets out what a personal representative or executor's duties are. And the core of that is they've got to act responsibly, uh, in good faith, and you know, to the best of their abilities, manage the estate uh, in accordance with the deceased wishes. If, you know, an investment has kind of gone downhill since the time that they took on the executorship, that may not be something that the personal representative can be liable for. It's just a market force that's happened during that time. Um, And that's different from if there's malfeasance on behalf of the, on the part of the executor and they're actually um, either... uh, Completely neglecting their duties, or they're making decisions that are unreasonable and would prejudice the estate and the beneficiaries. There are different, um, there are different, <coughs> sorry, um, obligations and remedies for a beneficiary in that situation.
0: You know, this is where it gets very challenging. People have to understand what they're signing themselves up for. Um, A lot of executors are surprised that they're the executor. There's no communication in advance. So I think that's part of it. The other part of it is when you do uh, or are named an executor and you have to act, at the point that you find out that you're an executor, I think you pause and see what the responsibilities are and can you actually fulfill those responsibilities. Uh,
1: Faisal, we get lots of interesting questions about economics in general, right? And there's terms that I think people take for granted that we hear all the time, but don't necessarily understand them. And maybe don't understand the, the connections between different things. Because it's not always in plain English. Let me, let me give
0: one example where I think Canadians and Americans have a concern. National debt. The more debt we bring on, it's going to bring economic catastrophe. Right. Right. And so I think we need to get our head around that one piece. And then there's going to be a whole bunch of other questions that will come out
1: of it. But, you know, we've got to bring some experts on our show. Well, and I think we've got one here. Howard Yaris is an economist, a professor at New York University. Among other things, he's also the author of Understandable Economics. Holy cow. Howard, welcome to the show, first of all.
3: Thank you very much, Dave. Oh. Thank you very much, Faisal.
1: <laughs> I'm looking forward to hearing you make uh, economics understandable. But there's a series of, of questions that we, we thought about in advance, Faisal. Correct. Uh, to try, you know, some of the key concepts that we get often asked about. Let's, let's go down that path. Yeah,
0: let's start with this. The, the question that we get, and as Canadians, we look at this and say, you know all this debt that Americans are putting on There's got to be some sort of catastrophe on the economy. It's got to hurt in some way. So let's start with that. Is the national debt that the Americans are holding, because we think it's a problem here in Canada, is it a big problem in the United States?
3: Well, it depends. Uh, The big issue is how much debt do we have in the United States? And there are a lot of politicians who will tell you it's way too much. I don't know about you, but 10 trillion sounds very much like 10 billion. Sounds very much like $20 billion. I can't get my head around those numbers. So what I did in the book is broke it out on a per person, per American basis. And that's a number you can get your head around. It's $68,000. Everyone can understand what $68,000 is. So our national debt in America, I, I don't know off the top of my head what the Canadian debt per, per Canadian is. But in America, the debt is $68,000 per person with a $1,000 a year interest payment. And now you can begin to have an intelligent conversation about it. Is that too much? Virtually everyone who starts a business, virtually everyone who buys a home has a bigger debt. If you go to medical school, you're likely to have a bigger debt. So the issue is, is, are you getting value for it or not? But the point of breaking it down on a per-American basis is to show that it's not the existential threat that a lot of politicians make it out to be. It's an issue. And it's, it's a lot of money, sixty eight thousand to $8,000 dollars. But if you're getting value for it, it makes sense. If you're not getting value, it doesn't make sense. But the bottom line is it's not a bankruptcy-inducing existential crisis that some people who don't want the government to spend on anything make it out to be.
0: I like the way he put that down to a per-person cost. That really makes sense. It's easier to digest that. Now, let's talk about digesting this. According to all the media out there about inflation and rising interest rates and the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve. You're hearing about that all the time. And the real question that comes out is, you know, what does the Fed do and how does it really affect our lives? I think we need to explain that to the average person.
3: Well, the Fed is America's central bank. Canada has its own central bank. And what the Fed does, that's the source of the U.S. dollar. Uh, the, The Canadian central bank is the source of the Canadian dollar. And they they increase the money supply through lending and they cut back on the money supply by cutting back on lending. And when they raise interest rates, they discourage lending. They slow the economy. And that's what they're doing now. And it's it's a way to reduce inflation. What's inflation? Everyone knows it's an increase in prices. But why does it happen? It's really very simple and it's it's often not discussed. There's a certain amount of money and spending the economy in the economy and there's a certain amount of stuff goods and services that the economy produces each year, and there's a ratio between the two. And if, if the amount of spending grows faster than the amount of stuff, you get inflation. If they both grow at the same rate, prices are stable. And in the odd case where spending grows slower than the amount of stuff, you get deflation. So they're just trying to slow the spending so that the two things come into, into a better balance.
1: Yeah, we often talk about that as too much money chasing too few too few goods, we say, but right. goods invo- involve services that's, as that's well. That's the right?
3: best way. Yeah, yeah. I yes, think that's, that's the best way to look at it. It's it's too much money chasing too you few goods. And by, by raising interest rates, they discourage yep. borrowing, which discourages spending. And so there's less money chasing the, the amount of goods and services. It is goods and services out of the economy. It would be fantastic. If the Fed could change that ratio by increasing the amount of goods and services rather than decreasing the spending, that would be a home run. But unfortunately, they don't have any um, factories or, or other or other ways to produce goods and services, so they have to rely on the the spending side of that quick, that ratio.
0: Dave, I want to give you a story that happened uh, a few years ago when I took my daughters to a wave pool, mm-hmm. and I don't I don't know if you've been there in a while, but every time. Uh, uh, the waves would start, everybody starts screaming. And then the waves slow down, and everybody calms down. The second time around, the waves come back up, and everybody starts screaming again. And my daughter asked me, why is everybody screaming? We just had the waves come not too long ago. And it sounds like a recession. Every time the recession's being called, ah, we all start screaming until it calms (laughs) down. And then another wave happens, ah. So, you know, when it comes to this, Howard, let's talk about the the economy and how it turns down every every so often and so forth. This concept of recession. Give us the viewpoint of, you know, why does the economy turn down and how does it get back on track?
3: Faisal, that's a great analogy to a wave. Before we had the Federal Reserve and before we had central banks, the economy would turn down and banks would fail. There's nothing that causes people to panic and cut their spending than to see their banks shut down and to lose their savings. Fortunately, we've evolved since then. They were called banking panics, and they happened at roughly 10-year intervals before we had central banks. What we have now are central banks. When the economy is, is falling off a cliff, when it looks like banks are failing, they come in, they lower interest rates, they add money to the economy. If the bank is insolvent, they make sure the the depositors are made whole so people don't have to panic and radically cut their spending uh, as they would when a bank fails. So we do have we still have a business cycle, but it's not as volatile. It's not as harsh as it was before we had central banking. We now have a system where the government through the central bank comes in and tries to smooth the business cycle. When there's inflation, when the economy is too hot, they raise interest rates and they slow down spending. When the economy is in a recession or not doing well, they try to um, uh, promote economic activity by lowering interest rates, getting people to borrow and uh, bring the economy back up to, to those steps. Yeah, yeah, that's So a recession exactly. is normal. So we, right, we are. Well, a recession is unfortunate. What in a recession we talk about a recession like it, it's just one of these things. It people lose jobs. Yep. People yeah. entrepreneurs lose money. Uh, retirement savings get reduced. A recession is is a very bad thing. Some of us are more insulated from recessions. You know, back a hundred years ago, economists were generally people who came from wealthy families, worked for for um well endowed universities they weren't weren't affected at all by recessions and right. they said this is before the famous economist John Maynard Keynes who worked in the uh in the in the nineteen thirties they said we'll just wait it out. It's like the weather it, it it goes up, goes down, we'll just wait it out. And it's it was easy for them to say that, uh, because they were not on the front lines of losing their jobs and losing their spending power. Uh, John Maynard Keynes came around and said the government has to do something, and one of the main things they do in a recession is lower lower interest rates to get people spending again. Okay, but at this point, um, we'd love to get rid of recessions, but they are
1: part of the cycle. Um, we hope that the central banks have been able to smooth those out so they're not quite as deep or as long as they have exactly. been in the Exactly, that's the goal. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So uh, evolve along those lines. I think that's cool. Let's talk a little bit about this notion... Um, of of tax and tax cuts. Here's a question for you: Do tax cuts for the wealthy create jobs, or do they just add to inequality?
3: Well, we certainly hear claims that they create jobs. Uh, there are there are a lot of politicians that do. I think what they what they do is they create campaign contributions <laughs> because they're, the the wealthy obviously enjoy tax cuts and, and reward politicians who support. Them. But let's think about this is. The point of understandable economics to try to use common sense to think through these things. If you give wealthy people tax cuts, what happens to that money? Wealthy people tend to have everything they need or want, so they just save it. But if you give that money to middle income or low income people, what happens to the money? They go out and spend it. They go to stores. They go to wherever they go to spend money. And there's greater demand for goods and services. And what happens when there's greater greater demand for goods and services? Businesses expand. They hire more people. People get jobs. Wages get bid up. So it's by giving money to middle or giving tax cuts, rather, to middle and lower income people that you really have a direct and immediate impact on the economy. Giving tax cuts to the wealthy is, is it's not going to be re-spent into, into the economy anytime soon. So, again, giving tax cuts to the um, middle and lower income people has, has a more direct effect on current economic activity.
0: Howard, we could talk about all this all day long. Unfortunately, we do have to go to commercial Yeah, we market. sure
3: could. <laughs> we will
0: bring you back on to talk about more about understandable economics. Uh, we've been joined by Howard Yarris, economist, professor, mm-hmm. author. Yeah. And if you want to go and pick up his book, Understandable Economics, because understanding our economy is easier th- than you think and more important than you know, it's available on Amazon. Or you can reach out to us so we can send you that link uh, to purchase his book. About a couple, about 300 pages worth of great information, easy for us to digest. I, th- I would strongly recommend uh, having a read of that book. Uh, once again, Howard, thank you for joining us today.
3: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
1: It is the season. Yeah, it is the season. Uh, but it's a weird season this year because markets are down. Inflation is high. And I read a report um, recently, it was out in the last, call it three weeks to a month, and it was looking at um, the effect that it's, you know, this, this weird environment is having on people. And it it concluded that the poll said 22% of Canadians are going to rely on charity in the next six months.
0: One in five.
1: Yeah. And that's it, it was interesting. When I was reading it, they said, if you're in the mall, look around the mall and look at five different people. okay, And one of those people expect to rely on charity.
0: Well, look at four, because the, the fifth could be you.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. right? Right? That's exactly right. Right? But in that group, one of them, expects to rely on charity. Now, there are people that uh, are still charitable in an environment like this, and um, I thought we should talk a little bit about that, right? Because it's a difficult environment. We get to the end of the year. Your portfolio could be down. You're feeling the effects of inflation. There are lots of people, perhaps in a worse situation than you, you still want to be charity. What do I do?
0: Yeah, You know, uh, when you look at this city and this province, charitable giving has been phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And I think um, in times like this, um, is when we get together and help each other out. And inflation may not have impacted everyone,
1: but and, it's impacted. it certainly hasn't impacted them in the same way.
0: Um, fair, and and, and it ha- but it has impacted many. Yes. When you look at the change in the economy, it has impacted many mm-hmm. to the point where the prediction is one in five Canadians are going to need some sort of help along the way. Yep. And so here's the opportunity for us to help out. Right. The question is, how do we do it? Mm-hmm. So what are some of the ideas you have or tips that you can provide to help these organizations that help the people who need it?
1: Yeah, and help the people. You know, as as I was reading that report, phase I was I stopped to think and I started writing down just some ideas around what people can do. Let me throw the first one out uh, to you. It, um, often what happens is we're not particularly strategic in our giving, right? You give little bits along the way. And then perhaps you want to give a larger amount and we get to December. And in a year like this, you think, oh, my portfolio is down. It feels, it feels difficult to do that. Well, one of the things um, that I, I thought would be important is if charitable giving is part of your lifestyle, do it monthly. Build it into your lifestyle plan so that it doesn't feel like it's a lump sum, it's an expense, you know, if it's a bad year. It's just part of your giving plan, right? It's yeah. part of the way you live your life. Yeah. Spread it out. It doesn't feel so daunting then when we get to the end of the year. So that's number one. How about a, um, a donation allocation? We talk about asset allocation all the time, yeah. right? A donation allocation, as I was sort of thinking through that, is, is prioritizing the kinds of things you want to support. So start at, 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 a, at a high level. Church, environmental causes, um, children's charities. Take your pick. It doesn't really matter what. Mm-hmm. And this could be a fun exercise with a family. We take this, these broad areas and we say, these are the key areas for us, for what, whatever they may be. And we're going to allocate of our total giving that amount. And then dig down into the specific charities that you want to support. Mm-hmm. Right, And so it becomes strategic. Um, it's, it's a, it can be a family exercise. Uh, you can teach kids about being good stewards of wealth.
0: And kids could be all <clears> ages, because <throat> there's a lot of adult children of our clients or listeners and viewers of the show who are not as charitable as their parents. That's right. And their parents wish that that was part of their core value system. Right. And so you can include this as part of the conversation uh, and have a donation allocation program
1: or plan. Yep. There's some strategic, tax strategic ways to give as well, right? We talk about not just cash, but donating securities in kind. And when we do that, um, in a year like this year, you might have positions that are down. You can take the loss, make a donation, right? And, And then still get the tax credit. But if you have positions that are up and we're in an oil and gas town, it's been a good year for oil and gas. You may have big, gains in certain positions. Well, you can shelter paying the taxable portion of the gain by a donation in kind.
0: I think this is an important piece because a lot of uh, Canadians first make money in their portfolio, and we're talking about non-registered assets here, not RSP or TFSA. They make money in that portfolio, they sell the investment, they pay the tax on it, they get the cash in their bank account, then they make the donation. And so they've already paid tax and then make the donations. So you have less money to right. give. So you could actually give the same amount or more right. and not have that tax exposure. Again, get proper tax and financial advice on this but before you do it and make sure the charity you want to support or the organization you want to support can receive those types of investments uh, that you, they, can, they can use towards the organization. So just have a little bit of a second thought before you just whip out the checkbook mm-hmm. or use your credit card. I think that's great to do that, but I think it could be a strategic way of doing it as well. Yeah.
1: How about the notion of um, donating life insurance? And life insurance can be a valuable financial tool in many aspects, and that would include charitable giving. Uh, And there's a number of ways to do that. We don't have the time to go into all of the aspects of it today, but a policy can be assigned or purchased for that purpose. There's lots of different ways to do it, Um, and it can enhance the overall amount that you're going to give. And that's what I like
0: about it. So... Personally, I have a a policy that has a uh, a couple of charitable organizations, and um, the premiums that I'm paying that will that is a deduction to me today, mm-hmm. but the payout upon my death is wh- well way higher than what I would have ever given. Right. And so, I think there's an opportunity to enhance the donation, supersize your donation, yeah. we'll call that. Um, and I think that's an opportunity for people who have some planned strategies that they can, they can give a little every month, mm-hmm. like you were suggesting with your first idea, but they can supersize it upon death. And I think that's that's a long-term thinking plan, but there's also a way to help that as part of your legacy as well.
1: Yeah, that's right. And this is where, you know, you think we can tie lots of these different elements together as you just did, but... Uh, the idea of strategic, right? Like sit down with uh, with your advisory team to discuss if this is a goal, because there's lots of different ways to do it, right? And most people don't even—they're not aware of it, mm-hmm. right? So educating people about the different ways to do this allows families to get to get more strategic. How about making gifts in kind? Okay, and that—that's a number of different things. So let's say let's say you don't have um, you don't have a bunch of cash laying around this year. Well, what could you do? You know, one of the things we talked about at, um, at the PKAG community event that we held uh, recently was this idea of, um, of the stuff you have laying around your house that you don't use anymore, mm-hmm. right? Tell me a little bit about what you, what you said there. So
0: the research basically out in, in, in USA and Canada, and the, there's more data in the U.S. than there is in Canada about this, but we are a society that accumulates stuff. Mm-hmm. And on average, in North America, Canada, U.S. specifically, the average household or house has about ten thousand dollars worth of stuff that, if they were they were sold the next day, people wouldn't miss right. them. They wouldn't use them. They lie around doing something. I think I've got two blenders, for example. <laughs> when was the last time I used a blender? Yeah, yeah, I was
1: gonna say. Was first why portion. would you even have one? Yeah,
0: <laughs> now I have two. These are the gifts that my kids give me. It's a hint: have some more vegetables in a blender. But the point is, I've got two. Yeah. If I if I Actually sold it in a garage sale, I could take that money and and donate it, and I wouldn't miss the blender, right? And I wouldn't have to have the vegetables.
1: And in some cases, you you'll be you'll be able to you'll be able to take those items and you can donate them directly, hundred percent, right? And in in and in some cases, you'll actually get a charitable tax receipt for those things as well, right? So the gifts in kind, clothing is always needed in a cold yeah. country like ours. Yeah. You know, there's always need for that.
0: And check with the charity how they accept it, because not yep. not all items right. in a
1: house can be accepted
0: the way they are. They have to be in certain kind of conditions and so forth. So I think that's, that's an opportunity. What else do you have on your list?
1: Um, two more, uh, very quickly. Staying with this, gifts in kind, time. Right? So not everybody has money and securities and stuff in their house to donate. Doesn't mean you can't give the gift of time. So there's
0: time, money, and I'd say knowledge. Mm-hmm. That's another way to help. If you can help associations with your knowledge so they can go out and get more, more funds to help that, that, the, the beneficiaries of that organization, I yep. think that's a, an opportunity. Time, yep. money, and knowledge. Great job. Again, if you want more information on how to help other organizations be charitable, help the people that, that need it the most, feel free to reach out to us at morethanmoneyready.com. Contact us, and we'll give you this list, some ideas, and we can c- connect you with some great strategies on how to help these organizations that you wanna support. Now, part of giving is knowing that you're also financially secure first. Yep. And as you go through retirement, you wanna make sure that you're good in order for your, your your ability to help others as well. So how do you know you're gonna have income for the rest of your life? How do you know you're gonna be able to grow your portfolio so you don't have to worry about these high inflation numbers? You wanna make sure that your healthcare is taken care of. All of these different issues that come up in retirement, we're gonna show you the strategy or the solution to the big problem of retirement on Tuesday, December 6th, 7 p.m. at the Carriage House Inn. You need to register for this, so go to morethanmoneyradio.com.
1: All right, on behalf of myself, Dave, and Faisal, I want to thank you for tuning in to another edition of More Than Money. You're on 770 CHQR. We look forward to chatting with you next week.